Welcome to the WCAPS 5 podcast series. WCAPS is an online community dedicated to strengthening the leadership and professional development of women of color, specializing in the fields of peace, security, conflict transformation, and foreign policy. Join us as we unpack their valuable perspectives, learn from their strategies, and grow together. Vive. Vision. Impact. Voice. Engagement. Okay, so my watch says 11.02, even though my computer just still says 11.01, but we're going to go with my watch. And first of all, it's really great to see all of you here, and welcome to our WCAPS event with Representative Castro. It's really our honor to welcome Joaquin Castro here today. As you all know, Congresswoman Castro is the U.S. Representative of Texas's 20th Congressional District. He is also chairman of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus and the Tri-Caucus Diversity Initiative that he started in partnership with the Black Caucus and the Asian Pacific American Caucus Uh, The effort is to track the demographics of witnesses across Congress. Over the past months, Congressman Castro has been championing many issues that are of concern to WCAPS and its members. These include not only the work he is doing as chairman of the Congressional Caucus, as I mentioned, but also his leading effort on diversity, equity, and inclusion at the Department of State so that the department is more representative of the fabric of America. In addition, along with the rep- with Representative Jackie Spear and Elliot Engel, Representative Castro is leading efforts on the State Harassment and Assault Prevention and Eradication Act, or SHAPE Act, of 2020. The act will facilitate stronger anti-harassment and discrimination policies, survivor care, and accountability at the State Department. The legislation, quote, comes nearly three years after more than 200 women who work on national security issues raised the alarm about sexual harassment and assault in in their field. The SHAPE Act would require the department to, quote, develop a comprehensive policy on the prevention of and response to harassment, discrimination, sexual assault, and related retaliation, and establish an office of employee advocacy to assist victims and provide a 24-7 hotline, 24 uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week hotline. Congressman Castro is seeking to be the next House Foreign Affairs Committee chairman, and WCAPS is hosting this moderated discussion to have a better understanding of his views on these issues that I've discussed to our community and on his vision as selected chair. Today, we also celebrate because tonight is the first debate of a woman of color nominated as vice chairman of the United States of America, Kamala Harris. So I wanna thank everyone who sent in questions for today's event. And I, along with some members of my board who you will meet, and advisors and staff will be asking questions that you pose for today's conversation. And with that, I'm going to take the privilege of asking the first question. Congressman Castro, what, will, what are your ideas for contribution if you are the HVAC chairman of the committee? What are your priorities and will these changes, will there be changes in your ideas if there's a change in administration in November? Thank you. Yeah, well, that's a wonderful question and a foundational question. And thank you, Ambassador Jenkins and everybody at WCAPS for all of your uh, work on these, air, on these issues of national security, of peace, and of diversity uh, in these fields. I very much appreciate it, and my staff does as well. And so you ask about uh, the Foreign Affairs Committee, 
Uh, I am running to be chair of foreign affairs. I'm vice chair of the committee now. I also chair subcommittee on oversight and investigations. So we've been working very hard to hold the Trump administration and Secretary Pompeo accountable, uh, including on issues of diversity and harassment at the State Department. And uh, let me answer your question uh, this way. And let's take both scenarios. The scenario where the president gets reelected first Although that's very, you know, a tough thing for me to swallow. It's certainly possible. It's tough to beat incumbent presidents. And then the second scenario, uh, if Joe Biden is elected, the new president of the United States. The first thing I would say is that regardless of who's president, who's elected president in November, the legislative branch has to reclaim some of its constitutional authorities and constitutional powers, specifically over the declaration of war and military engagements around the world. This is important because over the years, the executive branch has tended to take some of those powers, but at other times, I believe the legislative branch has actually willfully sat on the sidelines of what are some of the most consequential decisions a nation will make about taking military action against another nation or peoples. And so the, the next Foreign Affairs Committee, uh, I think, has to lead the way in reasserting the role of Congress in these decisions, regardless of who the president is. Uh, now, if Donald Trump is president, I think like many of us, I'm extremely concerned. And what I'm gonna say next, I don't say lightly. I think that we will be in a neo-fascist country. That's how bad I think uh, things will be. Uh, you see some of those authoritarian tendencies already. Uh, I think that uh, if President Trump is reelected, it's gonna be an affirmation for him of a few things. Uh, one of them is that his message basically uh, sometimes more explicit, sometimes more implicit of white supremacy is one that was affirmed by the voters of the United States of America. Uh, and then the second thing it's going to affirm for him is the idea that his, his you know, at times what seems like lawlessness uh, or usurpation of power from the other branches of government is something that the voters have just affirmed. And so I think that we're going to be in very dangerous territory. And I say that to mean, uh, you ask what the role of the Foreign Affairs Committee will be. Uh, at that point, I think that we'll be, to be quite honest, in a very adversarial role where we're trying to accomplish checks and balances against the executive branch. You know, obviously, if there, there are points where we can work with the administration, certainly we will. Uh, but I anticipate that the Congress is going to have to be as strong a check as possible on the executive branch if Donald Trump is reelected. Uh, now, let's imagine the other scenario where Joe Biden is elected president of the United States. Uh, for me, and I suspect for many folks, a much happier, rosier scenario, then I would like for, for the Foreign Affairs Committee to do a few things. The first thing is very early on, uh, we've got to be a partner with the new president to go around the world and let our allies know that the United States is back as a North Star on the things that we have cared about for years, uh, freedom, democracy, human rights, rooting out corruption. Uh, as you all know, the perception of the United States as a North Star, as a leader around the world on these issues has suffered incredibly over the last few years. Uh, and what has happened is that the world, in some instances, has started to go around us. Uh, countries have found other partners, including some in the Western Hemisphere that have gotten closer to Russia and China, for example. And so the legislative branch, I think, I would organize as chair CODELs uh, right away of varying lengths to go visit our allies and let them know that we want to partner with them again and work with them again on these issues. And, you know, I say a varying lengths uh, because there were a lot of codels I know over the years that were seven-day codels or, you know, eight-day codels that I couldn't go on 
because my wife and I have a young family. And so I'd like to shorten some of those codels so that more people, uh, including the folks, men and women who have families, can go on more of them. And so that's one of the things that I would do right away. And then also, and I'll talk about this a little bit later, bring in new voices to the witness table. For those of you that have followed the Foreign Affairs Committee or even some of the other committees, you tend to see a lot of the same witnesses over and over. Uh, but as you mentioned, I worked with Karen Bass of the CBC, with Judy Chu of KPAC, and also with the Women's Caucus and the Equality Caucus uh, and the Native American Caucus so that we could start measuring the diversity of expert witnesses that are called to the witness table, not only in foreign affairs, but in all of the congressional committees. And last week, I spoke in front of the Rules Committee to try to get that institutionalized in our rules so that we continue to measure it year after year. And I'll just say this, look, I think that there are a lot of women, there are a lot of people of color, there are a lot of LGBTQ plus folks, who are well qualified to sit at that witness table and give testimony, who over the years just have not been invited. Uh, and we need to see more of that. Excellent. Thank you for that answer. really appreciate that. I'm going to ask the WCAPS board member, Jane Reed, uh, to ask the next question, please. Good morning, Congressman. Thank you so much for your time and for all that you've done on the committee, along with your colleagues um, in providing oversight. I had a question, you know, I think it obviously depends on the outcome in November as well, but um, in terms of helping to rebuild confidence in the federal workforce and specifically in the national security foreign policy space, given how much they've had to go through, you know, from state, but also USAID recently, the intelligence community, defense, they've all had various personnel and other issues. What are your thoughts on how we can help to restore the confidence, um, public confidence in that workforce, you know, to elevate expertise again as a uh, as a critical asset for the United States? Uh, I mean, that's obviously a great question. And it's one that we're going to have to take up right away with a new administration. Uh, look, I mean, I, I won't sugarcoat it. There are a lot of people within the federal workforce who are down on the federal government, who are questioning uh, whether they should continue to stay employed in the federal government. We've seen a lot of people leave the State Department. In you know, One measure of that also is not the people there who are leaving, but also the fact that less people are taking the foreign service exam. Uh, and you all know that's always been one of the creme de la cremes, right, of, of our for federal workforce is foreign service dip diplomacy. And so uh, a few things. Uh, number one, I think just a, a new president and a change in posture, I think will go a long way to boosting morale uh, with folks. Uh, but we also have to make people feel as though they're empowered in their roles uh, and that their expertise and their voices uh, are valuable and have a role to play in shaping the policy that comes out of our government. And I feel as though over the last four years, a fundamental problem was that people would do a lot of work, would offer their expertise and their opinion and their perspective, having had all those years of experience. And rather than those people being listened to, too often the political appointees were the only ones who had a real say in what a department's policy was gonna be. Now, you all know that every president makes political appointments, but at the State Department, for example, uh, there's been an extra layer of political appointments that have been made that has, I think, politicized the department way too much. So you have to give the employees confidence that, that their work matters, that their place in the federal government matters. Uh, so we would try to systematically do that. You know, also bringing folks in, you know, the State Department, we work with them and they recently announced that they were going to expand the Rangel Pickering Fellowship 
Uh, a few years ago, that program was on the ropes. As you know, there was a, there was a proposal to scrap it, which we many of us fought them on. And thankfully, now they're expanding it. Uh, we also worked with uh, Karen Bass recently. She just had a piece of legislation that passed the committee last week uh, to allow people to come in at mid-level positions in the State Department. You know, if they're coming from other careers, I think that's very valuable as well. And then working on retention issues, more exit interviews, understanding what people are leaving. And I'm also amenable to the consideration of bonuses uh, and other incentives for folks uh, because we want good people to stay in the departments. Uh, and we also want them to be what they had been for, for years and years, which was, which was give their opinion and their perspective regardless of politics. Too often what we've seen with the Trump administration also is that the federal workforce, people who are career people, not political people, they feel heavily leaned upon to bend the facts towards what the Trump administration wants. And you see that after a while, you know, unless you've got somebody that just agrees with what the White House wants to do all the time, what happens is that people of good conscience and who value the integrity of their work, a lot of those people end up leaving because they don't want to be in that situation and they don't want to be partner to that. And, and that's the tragedy of the last few years. And I would work with the new administration to fix that. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you, Jane. And thank you for, for, uh, for the response. So next we go to Carolyn Washington, who is on our advisory council for a question. Okay. Good morning, Congressman Castro. On October 6, 2017, the U.S. Women, Peace, and Security Act was signed into law to promote the meaningful inclusion of women in processes to prevent, mitigate, resolve, and recover from conflict or disaster. How will you work to further the Women, Peace, and Security agenda? Oh, and that's a great legislation. A few things. Number one, there's got to be a greater role for women at the State Department and in national security. And I want to start, I'll talk about the State Department in a second, but let me talk about the intelligence community. Because over the course of my time in Congress, I served on three committees that if you drew a Venn diagram, uh, deal with a lot of the same issues from slightly different perspectives, Armed Services, Foreign Affairs, and the Intelligence Committee. And on the Intelligence Committee, uh, women and people of color are still woefully underrepresented. That's true at the State Department as well, uh, but also in the Intelligence Committee, uh, our community. So we have to do a lot better job of including women and giving them a path to rise in the ranks in at the State Department, in the Intelligence Community, uh, and otherwise. And, and so when we think about, you know, these different pieces of the agenda, uh, one of them is making sure that women's voices and perspectives are a big part of that. And I don't think that we've done that in the past uh, and we need to do a better job of it. Because as you all know, the people in power will often determine the agenda for our federal government, right? So uh, if you don't have a lot of women at the top ranks of the State Department or in the intelligence community, then women's issues in the nations that we deal with to them will not necessarily, I think, be as big an issue. Uh, because you don't have as many women there to to offer their perspective and to speak up about the importance of those issues, you know. And so, you know, when we think, for example, around the world about getting rid rid of the Helms Amendment, right, uh, which is which is an important thing, you know, I think that you know you need people in the room that are going to offer the perspective that that's an important thing that we need to do, and that's a matter for Congress as well, obviously, but it makes a difference. Thank you. Thank you very much. So now we're going to go with of our WCAPS board members, Basima Al-Hussein. 
Hello, Congressman. Thank you so much again for being with us. Given the current domestic and international policies, how can the committee prioritize and incorporate human rights, climate change, and social justice into foreign policy? We got to resolve to put those, make those priorities. As chair of the committee, one of the things that I'd like to do, in addition to expanding the voices at the witness table, I would also like to include the members of the committee. Uh, we have a fairly diverse committee to be able to choose the subjects and topics that we engage in. And uh, yeah, I think that there's a lot of subjects that we haven't gotten to in great depth over the years. Uh, let me take one of them that you mentioned, which is climate change. Right now, there are 80 million people around the world who are displaced from their homes, the highest number that we've seen since World War II. Some of those folks are climate refugees. The issue of climate change is becoming more and more prominent in the United States and around the world. And yet the Congress, I feel, has not been, has not taken on the issue, well, the issue of climate change, but the issue of climate refugees uh, in the way that it should. Uh, and so we have to make that, I think, a front and center issue. And then what were the other ones that you asked about besides climate change? Human rights is another and social justice issues. And so on human rights, for example, uh, I'll give you one of the things that is remarkable or very surprising to me. Over the last few years, we have not had a full committee hearing with the full spotlight, the C-SPAN attention, you know, you know, news coverage and so forth of the committee on a major human rights issue, which is the treatment of Uyghur Muslims in China. Uh, even though not too long ago, Donald Trump was on the phone with Xi Jinping, uh, implicitly endorsing what they're doing in those internment camps. And so these issues of human rights have to be front and center. And they've gotten, I think, more severe over the last few years, because as the president has pulled the United States back from the world, I believe what has happened is that a lot of authoritarian figures around the world have now figured out that not as many nations or nobody's mind, they feel like nobody's minding the shop. Like they can get away with mistreating their people or mistreating neighboring populations. I think that we've seen that. Uh, over the years, we've seen it with the Rohingya, for example. We've seen it with Xi Jinping in China. Uh, I think that we see it in Turkey. Uh, we see it, I think, in, in Brazil with Bolsonaro and the indigenous populations there. So in different places, and of course, Vladimir Putin has been doing it for a long time. But when the world feels like we're not paying attention to human rights, then I think the world becomes a more, a more dangerous place for vulnerable populations. And that's what we've seen. So we have to put that front and center as well. Also, I wanted to finish off on the social justice issue. You know, I talked about the United States being a North Star around the world on these values and principles that we care about, whether it's freedom, democracy, human rights. But when I think about social justice, the most important thing is that we have to get it right in our own country first. You can't be somebody that the world is gonna look to if you can't get your own house in order. Uh, and so, you know, I've been working very hard as well on police reform issues, on police brutality, criminal justice reform, on all of these things domestically. Because if the world looks at you, and as y'all know, uh, there are leaders around the world, uh, let's just take Vladimir Putin as an example, where you know, when, when they see the clips of African-American men being shot by police, let the rest of the world know or try to say, this is who America is. You know, this is America, right? And so you have to be able to fix those things and make sure that this is truly a country that is fair and just for everyone. And if we can't do that, or if we don't attend to it, that hurts our role and our moral leadership in the world. And I'm committed to doing that.
Excellent. Thank you so much. And I also appreciate some of the thoughts that are that are resharing in chat and some of the resources uh, reflecting on uh, the representatives' uh, comments. So now we have uh, Huda Hawa, who is also one of our board members for WCAPS. Thank you so much for your leadership, Ambassador Jenkins, and thank you, Congressman Castro, for being with us. I first just want to start by saying I so appreciate your um, your emphasis on wanting to diversify and expand witnesses in committee hearings, because I, too, think that that is incredibly important. And someone who used to work in an advocacy organization, I know how difficult it is to get those uh, marginalized voices in front of members of Congress. So thank you. Yeah, and that was that's a major invitation also for people to come testify in front of a congressional committee. That that is what is helping people's careers. You know, that's who the media starts to look to as experts. So we'll absolutely do it. Thank you. So my question for you is, as chair, you would certainly play an incredibly important role in shepherding legislation and setting the tone for foreign policy discussions, but you would still have to navigate the party's divisions and incorporate priorities from different committee members. So how do you plan on doing that on decades difficult issues like on Israel and Palestine and ensuring that those marginalized voices are still heard? Yeah, I mean, you're right. Look, there's no question that there are some issues that have long-standing challenges, and many, many very intelligent, passionate people have tried to take them on, and we, you know, we've not quite been able to get there. But let me try. Let me try to kind of describe how I would approach it, and specifically, let me speak about the Israeli-Palestinian issue. The United States over the years has positioned itself as a fair arbiter of the Israeli-Palestinian dispute. Uh, as the nation that is going to bring both sides to the table uh, and is going to come out with hopefully a, a lasting peace agreement. That has gotten more difficult over the last few years, for example, because of the way the, pro- the Trump administration has handled this process in essentially not including or you know, Xing out uh, the Palestinians from the negotiations and rather trying to impose a plan that includes annexation. And so uh, I had this week a meeting with J Street, for example, the MFI also, you know, I've said that I'm, I'm going to meet with everybody to talk about these issues. And what I said is that if the United States is going to be a, a fair arbiter uh, of these disputes, then we have to be willing to listen to both sides. Uh, and in the eight years that I've been in Congress, one thing that has concerned me is that as far as I can recall, we have not heard from any Palestinian voices. And, and, and so I was asked a question, I think by, by I think at DMFI, you know, well, how would you restart the peace process? Uh, and my, part of my answer was the first thing is that the Palestinians have to feel like they can trust the United States again to come to the table. So I believe that allowing them to air their perspective is important in restarting that peace process. And I also just think it's the right thing to do. Uh, I think, you know, you gotta be willing to listen, especially if you're gonna be the arbiter of that. Uh, or not arbiter, but the the mediator, I should say, and try to bring people together. And so that's the spirit that I would work in, uh, is is in a spirit of collaboration and and listening. Uh, I don't think that we should we should get ourselves into a position where uh, we're just we're going to say we're going to exclude you know voices of a whole people. You know, and look, Israel's been a friend of the United States for decades. And we have supported Israel in many ways, and we'll continue to support Israel. But we also have human rights concerns. Uh, we, you know, we want the Palestinians to have their own state. 
I said that I disagree with the United States using any money for annexation, for example. I don't think any American taxpayer money should go for that. And then I've disagreed with Prime Minister Netanyahu over the years. You know, I think that he's politicized the relationship within Congress, you know, and so there are a lot of challenges, but I want us to work in earnest and, and hear from everybody. And I, and I actually think that that's the only way that you're that you even have a shot at this point of bringing both sides together and reaching peace is if both sides feel uh, like you're actually listening and willing to consider what they're saying. And that includes not just an executive negotiating team that's meeting behind closed doors with both sides. That is the American Congress and the American people. Uh, I think that makes us stronger and not weaker. Great. Thank you so much for that. Okay, so our next question is from Crystal James, who's also a part of our WCAPS uh, board. Crystal? Thank you, Bonnie, for the opportunity and your leadership and Representative Castro for your willingness to engage. As Associate Professor of Public Health and Special Assistant to the President for COVID-19 Recovery at Tuskegee University, I'm intimately involved in the, cha- the changes in the delivery of curricula across the university, as well as the social and economic impacts on students. Many students who attend Tuskegee are first-generation college students and are international students. And when we went all remote, you know, these students had to return home to situations that were much more vulnerable as it relates to food insecurity and access to high-speed internet for reliable connectivity. During the hearing held by the Subcommittee on Higher Education and Workforce Investment in July 2020, entitled A Major Test Examining the Impact of COVID-19 on the Future of Higher Ed, the opening statement was given, and it highlighted the special vulnerabilities of HBCUs and other minority-serving institutions. What has been the outcome of that proceeding and how can we better advocate for continuing attention to the needs of these institutions, many of which are mission bound to serve the communities most impacted by COVID-19? Well, another great question. I mean, and HBCUs, Hispanic serving institutions and other minority serving institutions are just doing God's work in terms of educating our young people in this country uh, and particularly during this pandemic. And so uh, some of the things that we've done, including uh, as a reaction to that committee hearing, uh, you know, many of us supported legislation that, that would have provided grants directly to institutions that are dealing with, you know, the digital divide and also with the devastation of the pandemic of COVID-19. And in the HEROES Act, I believe we put about $1.7 billion in there for minority-serving institutions specifically, because like I said, they're doing incredible work and we have to be able to support them. And also, you know, there are other issues besides the digital issues that came up. You had a lot of students of color, for example, who when the, when the university started shutting down, they, they were trying to figure out where they were going to go. Whether they were, you know, some people literally had no other place to go, and that became a real challenge. Uh, same thing with meal plans, for example, you know, because they're receiving financial aid, and now suddenly, you know, they're back home and they're not employed, and you know, their families may not have the means to support them, uh, and so these became very real and important difficulties uh, for a lot of students of every background, but to, particularly for students of color, and that's why you know we made a special effort to try to single out a minority serving institutions and offer them help. And by the way, I actually, I don't think that that work is done. Right. I mean, you know, I mean, you're on the front lines of it. There is a lot greater need right now. Uh, I was, you know, devastated yesterday. I think I'm losing track of my days a little bit, but I think it was yesterday where the president said that he was going to cut off negotiations with the house speaker. I mean, uh, you know, it just, 
uh, at that point, you've left, you basically decided that you're going to abandon so many families and even so many small businesses uh, that are barely hanging on at this point, but, but also a lot of universities and schools that are struggling right now. And so you have my commitment. I serve on the Education and Labor Committee in addition to Foreign Affairs and Intelligence right now, but you have my commitment. That's something that I will continue to push because I understand that the need is there and that it's still great. Thank you for your response. And you're not the only one that's losing track of time right now. (laughs) So I don't remember where we are with so many things happening. So I can definitely relate to that. Our next question is from Netta Shaheen, who is is a fellow at WCAPS. And I want to thank her for the great work she's done in pulling together all the questions and and streamlining them for this event. So Netta? Congressman Castro, it's so great to be here with you. Thank you for being here with us. I've had the honor of being able to watch the different diversity hearings that have happened regarding diversity at state. And I'm wondering now, what are your thoughts regarding the recent executive order um, combating race and sex stereotyping, which prohibits diversity training? I think, I mean, in short, it's terrible. It's just terrible. You know, there are, I think, four Latino, Latina career diplomats at the State Department right now, a career ambassador, I'm sorry, ambassadors at the State Department who are career folks. And there are three African-Americans. You know, how do you look at that and, and, and think that that's not a challenge or not something that we should continue to take on and try to change? And a, a fundamental piece of that is anti-bias training for people who are making hiring decisions for example. And so the president's order, I think, is a devastation to the efforts that I know a lot of you in your own careers and then now with this work and many of us in Congress have been working on for quite a while. I mean, look, hopefully this period will be over in January and we can get back uh, to progress, but that has been quite tough. You know, and then I, I compare that to what we saw yesterday. I just read yesterday. If you all remember in the last few months, different private corporations like Microsoft have come out and said, for example, that they're trying to try to significantly increase the number of African-American employees. Well, the Justice Department has now sent them letters challenging them on their intent to do that, basically implying now uh, that they are engaging in racism by trying to do that, right? So this is, a, this is a, in addition to the State Department, federal government, you know, this is an effort that the Trump administration is taking beyond that. And, and I just think that, yeah, I just wholeheartedly disagree with their approach. I think they're trying to move us in the wrong direction. Uh, and, you know, I think that the president at this point, at this point uh, is safe to say that he is supporting a white nationalist uh, agenda, both in his rhetoric and in what he's doing and who he's empowered in his administration. Great. Thank you for that. So I get the honor to ask the next question. I wonder if you could summarize your position on the treaty to prohibit nuclear weapons and what, in your view, should be the next steps to denuclearize North Korea? (laughs) Oh, these are only the easy questions, I know. (laughs) Uh, Well, first, uh, I support, I strongly support nuclear nonproliferation. Uh, We have had some challenges with that over the last few years. As you all know, the president backed out of a nuclear treaty with Russia beyond the saber rattling early on in his term. You remember there was a point where he and Kim Jong-un were going back and forth on Twitter, and then he made the in-person visit with Kim Jong-un. But beyond that, by most, most reports, North Korea is actually closer to a nuclear weapon than it was at the start of President Trump's term. Same thing with Iran. 
the president took us out of the Iran agreement, an agreement that had been effective in containing Iran's nuclear program. And again, he withdrew us from those things. Uh, so in terms of you know, nuclear nonproliferation, uh, say we get back into the Iran deal, uh, that we make nuclear nonproliferation priority again. Uh, and then with respect to North Korea, you know, it's a tough one because there isn't a simple answer here, right? Uh, l- let me go through it. I'm going to talk through it uh, real quick. First, we need to get a full understanding of how far along they are in terms of their nuclear development. We also need to get full cooperation from uh, allies, European allies, and from China. Uh, and this is, this is uh, I think, an important point as to why we can't get into a Cold War with China because you need their cooperation on things like climate change, but also you need their cooperation specifically on North Korea in trying to work with North Korea and figure out how we can best contain their nuclear program and their nuclear development. Uh, and, you know, and look, we have to be willing to engage North Korea as well. You know, the president in, had some engagement, that that engagement was, you know, a few conversations and an in-person meeting and so forth. And then that was about it. Nothing else came of that. And it seems as though they've quietly gone about their way of of developing their nuclear program. And so, you know, we have to very systematically uh, figure out where their nuclear program is, engage our allies uh, to contain them, and then get them to the table to see how we can further contain it. Great. Thank you for that response. So now we're going to go back to Jane Ree for a question. Thank you. And part of this question incorporates this question, I think that was sent in. But on a couple of issues, if there is a new administration, I think on key issues like China and trade, for example, the Democratic Party has also kind of evolved this thinking, I think, over the last four years. And I'd be curious about your thoughts on, you know, how should the new administration approach China and trade where we may not be doing a complete 180 from and going back to the days of 2016, but how do we go forward on those issues and make sure that we are you know, taking into consideration what other members of the democratic kind of spectrum from moderate to progressive are thinking these days. Sure, absolutely. And look, our relationship with China is, is filled with many ironies and conflicts. Uh, China, on the one hand, well, you're dealing with the United States, which is the largest economy in the world, China, which is the second largest economy in the world and growing very quickly, and also China, which is our largest trading partner and has its own ambitions with its Belt and Road Initiative, for example, about what it's doing and its relationship with other nations. But I think that when we approach China, there has been a fundamental failure by the executive branch and by Congress, quite honestly, to come up with a holistic approach, because I think that we fundamentally failed to do an important thing, which is we have failed among ourselves to define what it means for China to fairly compete in the world as a nation, versus what it means for them to cheat, you know, because I think that dichotomy will then determine your reaction, right? Uh, If it's a matter of China fairly competing in the world, then I'm confident that the United States is up for the competition. Uh, I believe that. On the other hand, on issues where we believe that they're cheating, uh, whether it's human rights or intellectual property theft or military aggression, then that's where obviously it gets tougher in making a decision. Uh, I would lead with diplomacy first in working with them on these issues. And you know, and when it comes to trade, uh, again, they're our largest trading partner. Uh, there has been a sense for many years uh, that China could, that we could get a better deal out of China. Uh, I do think that it's, been, it's promising what we saw with the rewrite of NAFTA, for example. Uh, NAFTA, I think, NAFTA 2.0, or the USMCA, 
I think greater incorporated the priorities that Democrats have really evolved into over the last several years, right? A stronger labor and environmental protections, for example. So we have to use that as a baseline as we think about how we're dealing with China and other nations uh, and any trade agreements that we're going to have going forward. Excellent. So our next question is from Rahawa. Thank you. How do you see the COVID-19 pandemic affecting the FY21 foreign aid budget? And what impact will this have on restoring or even seeing your vision of our U.S. foreign policy? I'll be honest with you all. I'm really concerned about what it could do. I mean, again, it depends who the president is. But you all know that the president has tried to slash foreign assistance in different parts of the world, try to slash the funding at the State Department. I think that first year, his proposal was to cut it by 30%. You know, fortunately, the Congress has not gone along with that. But I was recently part of an effort to try to get $20 billion in extra foreign assistance for COVID-19 relief uh, sent around the world. And I'm going to continue those efforts next year. Uh, I think that we've really got to put our foot on the gas. And, you know, and I know, look, at, at, at times like this, times of crisis, and every nation is going through it in its own way. But as you all know, I mean, this, this pandemic has, uh, its effects have been exacerbated by an administration whose response has been very poor. And so because of that, I think there's, you can feel there's a tendency of Americans to feel like, hey, you know, we got to make sure that we keep as much as we can because, we're hurting. And it's true. I mean, like I said earlier, you look at families and individuals and businesses and schools. uh, At the same time, uh, we have to still be able to go out there uh, and help our allies and do humanitarian work and be part of leading the world's recovery on this. Uh, And, you know, so I, as chair and as a member of the committee, I absolutely intend to push for that. And I think we need to rejoin the World Health Organization. You know, our answer to the United States and President Trump got so concerned about China's growing prominence in the United Nations that somehow his, you know, his instinct was, his decision was to pull us away. Well, that's not going to do it. Then at that point, the, the nation that's the second largest economy in the world is just going to grow even more and more prominent, right, without, without any counter considerations uh, where we do disagree with them by the United States. And so we also have to re-engage in multilateral institutions who are doing the humanitarian work and the work of recovery as well. Thanks. And I totally agree about having to get back into the World Health Organization and pulling out at a time when we need to be working with other countries. So I agree with you on that. Okay, our next question is from Basima Al-Hussein. Hello, Congressman. Thank you so much again for talking with us. Um, My next question has to do with gender-related issues. What are your priorities for HVAC on gender-related issues, including women's reproductive rights, like, for example, abortion and unlawful hysterectomies, et cetera? That I think that we we need to make that as a committee a priority in terms of the topics that we bring in front of the committee. Uh, Y'all have my commitment that I will make gender issues around the world a greater priority for the committee if I'm elected chair, because I, I, I don't think that we've done enough work there, you know, and whether it's reproductive rights, the right to an abortion, getting rid of the Helms Amendment, you know, uh, all of these are important issues that we need to take on, uh, but also living standards, wages, uh, you know, all of these things, uh, equality generally for women in different societies uh, is going to be incredibly important in the next term and beyond, I believe. 
you know, and you mentioned the hysterectomies. I mean, as you all follow the news, that's been a big issue here at our detention centers. I chair the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, and we did a CODEL, uh, I guess about a week and a half ago now, going on two weeks, to the Irwin Detention Center in, in southern Georgia, about three hours from Atlanta. And there were reports there of several women now who were who had hysterectomies performed on them without their consent, uh, and, and some of them without their knowledge. Uh, and that has been verified now by doctors who have looked at their records and said, these women did not need these hysterectomies. Uh, in addition to that, women had other procedures, not hysterectomies, but other procedures, medical procedures that were performed on them uh, without their knowledge or without their consent. And, you know, in the United States and also around the world, but in the United States, I think there's got to be criminal consequences for people who do that. Uh, you know, we have to show that we're serious about stopping these kinds of things. I mean, those are severe human rights violations happening in our own country. In, in a place in the United States. And so uh, obviously that's still an open investigation and, and you know, we're gonna continue to, to press forward on it. Uh, but those are also the kinds of things that we need to stop from happening around the world, right? Uh, we need to work with, with foreign governments uh, to make sure that they're treating women equally. Thank you. Thank you for that. Okay, our next question is Crystal James. Yes, WCAPS has worked with um, approximately 500 COVID-19 